Hey guys, welcome to a very special edition of the Detour. We say that every week, Johnny, but uh, this one's a great. It's six fifty a.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time, so much better time for our uh, European viewers at uh, at night and people in America. I'm joined by four-time national road champion Johnny Tavaro. Johnny, uh, are you an early morning person, mate? I would normally be just about waking up about now, so yeah, not too bad, not too bad. <laughs> yeah, mate. Every time I've called you at about eight a.m., you've always got a croaky voice, so <laughs> I don't trust that statement. Uh, but we, but we are. Uh, Teaming up with Telstra Connected Cycling uh, for the next four weeks, and we're joined by Sandy Woolley. Uh, Sandy, you're the race director for the Zwift ride today, mate. Uh, do you want to explain to the to the viewers and listeners what is actually happening today? Yeah, th- thanks, Dan, and thanks, John. And firstly, I just want to say fantastic for you guys to um, join us. It's um, really looking forward to the next four weeks. But uh, Telstra Connected Cycling actually started 31 weeks ago as a as a way in which we um, stayed together while we got locked down. So it started with a bunch of cyclists getting together, then doing an interview. Duncan Armstrong, Telstra employee, Olympic gold medalist from the 1988 Olympics, is our host, and we've had some great guests. In fact, a filmmaker by the name of Dan Jones came on. Oh, it had to be a highlight, mate. <laughs> it was a great episode. We've had some great people come on, though, so that's essentially what we've been about. And we ride in Zwift. We have over 200 riders now in the event, and uh, it's just a way in which we've connected and paid it forward, really. It's a bunch of bunch of Telstra folks doing good. Now, speaking of uh, Duncan, he had a, quite a serious health scare uh, last week. Uh, how, how is he going? Yeah, he's uh, going pretty well. I spoke to him yesterday. A little bit croaky voice, but really good spirits. Um being the person that he is, very upbeat about how he's going to go with recovery. He's already set himself a goal, five laps of the ward each day. So he's well and truly on the way back. And uh, But, yeah, big scare, big scare for us. Now, you've got the Zwift ride going on today, mate. Do you feel extra pressure? There's an international audience now. We've sent a link out on our socials for if you want to get involved and get on Zwift. Uh, it's not normally my go, but uh, Johnny, you could have actually suited up with Lyca and had a crack today yourself, mate. Well, I almost did, but I, I, I actually I don't admit this to Wes Salzberger, but I don't even know how to connect Swift, so I'll have, I'll have to do that one now. You struggled <laughs> to connect to this show, let alone a bike. <laughs> so I'm technically dyslectic, and uh, but we had no issues since uh, Sandy gave me my little Telstra box, and now we're we're uh, we're going really well. Is so that we're we're connected all the time? And so, Sandy, explain what the ride is today. Is it is it one hour and I think you've got prizes up for grabs as well? Yeah, 45 minutes, Dan. And um, Cisco WebEx is our sponsor. So we actually have a couple of prizes. I will take a photo at a time, undisclosed to anyone, just to keep the bunch together for being closest to the beacon. And I'm the beacon. My challenge is to keep the group together, encourage people, try not to scold them, but encourage them to stay close and win a great prize from our partner Cisco WebEx. Fantastic. Um, well, we'll we'll check in with you uh, throughout the show uh, and see how you're travelling. Uh, is there yeah. any particular time where you feel that you, you're going to have enough breath to communicate to us? Oh, look, it, it, it's it's any time really because I'm just going to be huffing and puffing worse than I am now. We're sitting on the blocks 
everyone's joining in the game. But look, I do want to say, Dan, that really, as as um, part of what Telstra is all about, is connecting people so they so they can thrive, if you like, and bringing purpose to technology is what we do. This is what this whole ride is about through a shared love of um, cycling. But we have so many who will be joining us this morning out walking, running, some even just listen to us under the doona. So it's uh, fantastic to have uh, them all join us again in this new format. I say that Telstra Connected Cycling is to Telstra what the sausage sizzle is to Bunnings. So we've just got a bit of extra special sauce, I reckon. It's been a huge, uh, a huge unexpected surprise for what we've created this year. Well, I'd say it's even better than that because the sausage chisels have been put on hold, mate. So at least they're back. Right they're back right. Are they back? Yes, the sausage chisels are back at Bunnings. Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, there you go. And if people want to get involved, they can email you guys, Telstra Connected Cycling at team.telstra.com. And uh, you guys run this ride every week, same time. That's right. Every week. We've also got LinkedIn and Facebook groups. So if you want to learn about what we're doing and what we're up to, get engaged, send us your feedback and what you think of uh, our event and what ideas you might have we could incorporate. We're all ears. So jump on those groups as well. Good stuff, mate. Well, you're about to pull the gun and, and the ride's going to get underway in about five minutes' time. That's uh, it. So we'll check in with you a bit later on. And, uh, yeah, we've got a jam-packed show, so we're going to be chatting with Brady O'Donnell, Stewie O'Grady, and uh, we'll check in with you later on. Good on you. Thanks, guys. Good on you, Sandy. Keep pedaling, Sandy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, as we said, we've got a jam-packed show. We've got uh, Stewie's going to chat about, obviously, there's been a bit of an uh, outbreak in South Australia at the moment, so there's a few challenges going on over there. And uh, Melbourne, looks like we're on the way out, Johnny. We've had... Uh, well, we should be 19 days in a row with uh, double donuts. Double donuts. It's a great little saying, isn't it? And uh, I don't mind a donut here and there and a double donut there even better. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, let's bring in our first or only live guest, uh, Dr. Bridie O'Donnell. Uh, Bridie, how are you travelling? Are you an early morning person? <laughs> Today I am. <laughs> I have a dog, though, so she wakes me up. And uh, we do a bit of a lap of the, the park before I start work. So generally, I'm awake early. Um, Brody, we had a chat with Stewie last night. Obviously, there's a lot of challenges for the TDU. Uh, you're also working pretty hard behind the scenes with the government at the moment for various projects. Uh, how are things uh, going? We're at the back end now. There's, there seems like there's a bit of hope in, in Melbourne. But uh, South Australia had a bit of a setback. How, how's things travelling for you guys? Pretty good here. I mean, I think what, what we're all projecting is the Premier will make announcements this weekend, so we're going to make that next step. And that's a really big thing for a lot of people around what gathering sizes will look like, and that has a big impact on events, not just sporting events, but um, creative events, music, business events, those sorts of things. But you can imagine it has to be done in a really safe way. Queensland did that. New South Wales, they had a, you know, a few thousand people went to the Gabba for the first um, AFL game and now it looks like they're going to have around 50,000 at the State of Origin um, tonight for the third game and having no limits. So it's taken them, you know, four months or so to build up to um, a capacity stadium and that's in a state that's had very few outbreaks and very few cases. So you can imagine Victoria needs to be really cautious I think South Australian outbreak has given a lot of states a big scare because it makes you realise just how long they went without any cases at all. 
and and how contagious the virus is, how easy it is to spread it if you're not observing, um, you know, quite rigorous hand washing and mask wearing. So that's why it went to 17 cases so quickly. But the good thing is it looks like people in Adelaide have been great. They're getting tested. They're doing everything they need to do. And we've seen this happen in New Zealand too. They just kind of, let's jump on it quickly, close everything down for a few days. Auckland's had a couple of incidents where they've said, let's just everyone stay down, you know, inside if you can for three or four days until we understand where everything's going on. So I reckon most governments are working out that outbreaks are going to happen. How do we manage them? But the challenge is the borders, isn't it? That's a really big difficulty for Australia, state borders. Yeah, and I have a bit of an issue with that. But before we go any further, because Dan, who normally is the host uh, uh, extraordinaire, has, has, hasn't really introduced you, uh, uh, Brody, because we're it's going too to early in the morning, mate. It's uh, not. I'm not. I know, I know. We're a whole new audience. Uh, people know we've spoken to Brody many times, so I, I normal uh, uh, regular listeners and uh, and watchers know all about Brody, but Brody. Um, you're not just a, a doctor and talking about these expert things, but you are uh, a champ, or were a champion cyclist, still a keen cyclist. I'm still a champion, John. <laughs> in my you heart. Were, you were, yeah, well, you were, you were a national champion and world record holder. I still remember when you broke that world record, which was in the early days of of your cycling career. Um, but I've been I've been googling you and I've been finding out a few things about you uh, just recently, and it says here you are a, a hippie. Girl from the Sunshine Coast, uh, and well, my parents uh, were hippies. Yes, and and yeah. you lived off the grid. That so was really yeah, uh, yeah. My parents um, left Brisbane now, but they're a teacher and a social worker, and they moved to the Sunshine Coast. But actually, the Sunshine Coast hinterland down in the Obi Valley, and we had we grew up with no electricity. My dad built our mud brick house, and he's a teacher. And mum, you know, drove up the hill to go to work each day, and dad. Um, homeschooled us for a few years while he built our place. And, yeah, we had no TV till I was 12 years old. It was an amazing way to grow up. It was terrific. We had a few yeah. neighbours, though, that were growing dope and sometimes car, <laughs> cars would move down the but dirt road and we'd quite, say, quite, I think it's quite, next door. <laughs> you started slightly quite late, but you were pretty successful straight away. You would triathlon uh, and uh, led you into it. But uh, I can remember you when you won the uh, national Time trial title and uh, uh, sort of surprised everyone and raced at the top level. So it's just I wanted to fill that in so everyone knows you do know a little bit about cycling. And of course, all the, even the uh, the Telstra connected cycling mob would have heard you this year uh, on, on SBS where you jumped in with the in the breach with uh, Robbie and Maddie, uh, and that was fantastic. You must have really enjoyed that. Oh, it was amazing. I have never done the Tour de France any other way, though, so I think it would have been really challenging for Robbie and Matt because they're used to going town to town in France and following the race the way everyone does when the race uh, is underway in normal circumstances. So to have Matt and I in a studio in Melbourne, uh, Robbie um, in a studio in Sydney, Tom Alaris in the, in the main part of the studio with guests coming in, guys like Renshaw were there and Rochelle Gilmore. So it was actually an incredible show but an amazing feat of production by the SBS crew as much as the race was, I think, for all of us, just incredible, right up to that final time trial on the Saturday night. So, yeah, it was an amazing experience to be part of. Well, what's yeah. even more amazing is you didn't have TV till you're 12. My brain still can't wrap my head around that. Like, I was, a, <laughs> I was addicted to Sesame Street from, you know, three or four years old. How did you go to school when all the kids would be talking about what's on TV and you'd be like, I got nothing? 
Yeah, you're right. Kids do, don't they? They share, like, you know, what they watched last night. Um, that said, don't worry, I'm 125 years old. So back in the day, not having a TV wasn't as drastic as it would be right now. Um, but we would go to other people's houses and I would sit and watch ABC like we'd be watching Monkey or The Goodies or oh, Kenny yeah. Everett's show, those kinds of things. And yep. I think, wow. how go- Or Doctor Who was the most terrifying thing I'd ever seen those Daleks. Just, you know, the CGI's got nothing on Daleks. Hey, just no, on the—I I, I, I was seven when we got television. That was because no one had television back there. Because 1956 was when TV first started, so I, I was seven. <laughs> and I remember Dad had a little hardware store, a bike shop, sort of thing. So we got TV when it first came out for, for the '56 Olympics. And I remember he used to leave it. Uh, running in the window, and when the TV would go off at about 10 o'clock, he'd drive up to turn it off, and there'd still be people sitting outside watching the test pattern. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, just on the TV side of things, do you think after 2020 a lot of these uh, production uh, companies and so forth and networks are going to look at their costs and say, hey, you know, the coverage worked really well. We don't actually need to send as many crew on the ground to things like the tour. I think that's a really good call. I think people are rethinking the way a lot of stuff will happen with sport, um, given what happened in 2020. Um, Even having teams all travel, you know, I'm starting to hear rumblings about some of the teams are preparing to have hubs or bubbles in one state as a matter of course. It just means less travel, less flights between games. Um, That certainly was the case for a lot of the AFL teams this season. There were some upsides to that challenging sort of experience for them. But also um, we've seen the way the commentators either commentated footy or other codes from different places or they all travelled there. I don't know the differences in budget for, for what SBS had to spend. Certainly the, the purchasing of the rights is the most expensive part of, of covering the SBS. But you're certainly right that not having to pack up and move every single town, uh, every single stage and driving four or five hours, the, the crew and even, of course, all the commentators were less exhausted, although most of us were working on France time while we're here in Australia and that disrupted your sleep. Unless you're Robbie and you can sleep, you know, until 2 p.m. every day. He, he used to boast about how good his sleeping was. Um, I think we should play the first part of Stuart O'Grady's interview because then we can chat about uh, the Tour Down Under afterwards uh, because obviously they've got a few challenges. So let's let's play the first snippet of our chat with uh, race director Stuart O'Grady from yesterday. Stewie O'Grady, race director, Santos Tour Down Under. I want to open the batting, mate, and say, how many times have you said to Mike Turd over the last nine months, what a year to hand over the bloody reins? <laughs> Mike told me it was going to be an easy job. Yeah. Uh, threw me the keys. But no, it's been, it's been a challenge, um, that's for sure. I mean, but, but life's been a challenge for everybody. So, um, you know, the, the, the TDU team, everyone in that SATC have been working unbelievably hard. They've been doing a fantastic job. You know, we're constantly changing, updating race routes, plans, starts, finishes. You know, uh, it's been one hell of a workload, but the team have done an absolutely fantastic job. So when we do eventually get the race up and going, it's going to be awesome. (laughs) Stewie, I talk to you regularly. Uh, you know, with my role in running events over here as well, and and, mm. and you're always very positive, but you've been hit with another curveball, uh, uh, of course, with what's just happened in the last couple of days in, in South Australia. So it's just a, a moving uh, uh, juggle all the time, isn't it? 
Yeah, that's right. And, and when it's not when it's not in your control, it's you know you kind of just have to roll with whatever the the health authorities and and SAPO, um, you know, tell us. So, you know, we're we're pretty much, um, you know, almost, uh, you know, going to hopefully go out there and and announce something. And and now we've had to take a few backward steps. So, um, you know, SA Health are pretty pretty busy at the moment trying to, I guess. Uh, control this outbreak and and you know it's not it's not one or two people it's it's a it's a big group of people so who covered a, a wide footprint um, not only over the northern suburbs but uh, across quite a few areas of of uh, SA so they got a lot of work to do um, at the end of the day we're we're ready to go if if we get the opportunity um, obviously not for the world tour that's all done and dusted um, but yeah we'll. We're really hoping to get something up and going just to kind of celebrate 2021, but uh, we're on hold. Have you got to the point now, mate, where it's like things out of your control, you've just sort of got to release the grip a bit because it is changing like so regularly. And if you get in the mental mindset of, no, it has to fit like this, it can just all get swept from underneath you. Yeah, and no, I think everyone's been pretty adaptive and flexible and and we've done it, you know, everyone has done a really good job of continually changing and the workload's been you know relentless um i think i told johnny i think i'm up to tdu version 8.0 um <laughs> and you know still doing still doing stage recons in november um you know when we should be looking at uh, which flights the guys are about to landing um you know it's it's just been flipped on its head uh but you know you deal with it yeah. You're going worse than me because uh, I'm on uh, Lexington Blackburn Bay Crits uh, 6.0, so a couple of more. <laughs> I reckon that stage is a bit longer as well, though. So it's been a hell of a lot of. It's been a great way to explore my state. Um, you know, it's been the longest I've ever been home since uh, you know you started going to the junior worlds when I was 16. So to be home for a whole year, uh, that's a first. Uh, to be home for the July holidays, it's a first. Um, you know, and being able to explore my backyard and, and find some pretty cool roads, which uh, hopefully we'll be able to um, put into the TDE. Is one thing you would have seen this even as a rider, you get to know the true character of people during a time of crisis, or what you know, you've you said before, you know, how many extra hours people are having to work. Are you really getting to see that with the team in Adelaide? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, it's it's hard. Everyone's given a task. Um, you know, I kind of come in, not the easy job, but you know, designing stages. Uh, you know, it's not the hardest job in the world. You just want to make. You've got all the the roads are built. You just got to go and explore them and get a bit creative. Um, you know, the hard bits dealing with the contractors. Um, you know, the sponsorship, marketing, uh, the councils. Well, you know, they're all investing. A lot of their money into into the race, and then for us not to be able to give them clear decisions because we have, haven't got the clear answers. Um, you know, there's a lot more pieces to the puzzle. Uh, that was the first part of the studio Grady chat. Um, there's a bit to unpack. Is I want to ask you, Brady, is one of the biggest issues currently going on at the moment uh, the fact that. Uh, f- to run events like TDU, uh, and if you do want international tourists, I mean, s- these states have worked so hard to protect these bubbles and the influx of people coming overseas, just people's mental nervousness about the thought of flights arriving and then trying to quarantine this stuff. Um, is this one of the biggest challenges, particularly being in Australia, that we, we need people to travel from overseas for events? 
We totally do. And, you know, for people who were following closely the TDU announcements and, of course, Cadell announcements, a big part of the reason why those events have had to change or be postponed and, you know, reworked is because the, the risk of international arrivals um, coming here and then what they want to do, what they'd like to do in their special quarantine versus what the mandatory quarantine looks like. You know, the average person who flies into Australia is 14 days in a hotel. We've seen anyone who's watching on social media, there's been a lot of international athletes. Jess Vox, she's an Olympian, silver medalist in the women's kayak, 14 days in a hotel, Morgan Mitchell. So even, even if you're a star-studded athlete, you've got to do 14 days if you're on other states. And I, from what I understand, the cyclists who were hoping to come over for Tour Down Under, European and American cyclists were saying, well, in other countries, we really only have to do seven days quarantine and we can still go riding. What I think has been the most um, important difference between what Australia is seeking to hold on to and what a lot of European and American countries are probably let go of is this community transmission rate. So we're currently amazingly, touch wood, at now 18 days in a row in Victoria of double donuts, meaning zero new cases, zero deaths, amazing results. South Australia, we're at that for months. Um, so what we're actually trying to do in Australia is protect the community from potential coronavirus infect, infection coming from overseas. What they're trying to do at the Tour de France, the Giro, the Vuelta, the US Open, is protect the athletes from the community where in, if you like, it's kind of running rampant. And we we need to, in Australia, actually really be mindful and careful about the fact that we want these events, but how do we do that without compromising the safety of all just the regular people and filling up our ICUs with sick people? You know, I don't think there's many people in, in Australia who are denying the virus exists, but we're still hearing those stories come out of the United States. Sick people in hospital saying, this isn't coronavirus, coronavirus doesn't exist, Trump told me so, you know. So that's dangerous, clearly, and is leading to death. And Australia is doing every week, everything we can to protect our community from that. So that means a lot of athletes are not coming over the way that they would have. Ify? Yeah, so the one thing the South Australian outbreak has done has uh, reinforced to us all how quickly it can change. I mean, it's fantastic. 18 days, as you said, and people start to think, oh, well, we've beaten this, you know, we're done. But South Australia had a lot, lot more than 18 days and suddenly bang, and it happened so quickly and grew so quickly. But as you say, they've got to do a handle on it. But it really reinforces to everyone just how um, alert and on the ball we have to be. It's just a matter of really um, being conscious of social distancing, you know, uh, wearing the mask and, uh, when you're in a, in, a, in a crowd and things like that. I think those those issues will stay around for quite a while. And right, Ify. Yeah, they will. And until there's a vaccine and the majority of people are vaccinated, um, we're still going to be in this bumpy road for the next few months. As you said, Bridie, if it's about with the races in Europe, you know, keeping them in that bubble whilst it's running rampant, does that mean that there's a pretty good chance that the season will get underway next year as long as they can sort of carry that Vuelta blueprint to races and, and that sort of the bar? I'd love to be in those meetings where they're talking about planning um, not just spring races because, of course, they were all held in September, October this year and they need to be brought forward again back into the standard March, April. I do wonder how that's going to impact the, the economic 
costs of a te- running a team. And we saw the pressure it put on, say, the lower paid, the lower budget teams, so professional women's teams have less money. You end up having to think, can we afford to send all the riders across to these teams with the risk of that race being cancelled? Um, what does it mean for contracts? We saw some teams folding and not paying riders. So it's going to start to trickle down into, um, you know, who can afford to go where and, and the risks of cancellation. And even having a bit of transparency on, um, you know, once a race is called, you know, like let's hold Paris-Roubaix Bay over that Easter weekend or Flanders over the Easter weekend, what are the risks of it being cancelled? What does that mean for the venue, the people, the towns, the broadcast? So that'll be some of the conversations that start to happen. People will want more insurance. Um, and, in fact, if we think back to Grand Slams, Wimbledon had pandemic insurance, but none of the other Grand Slams did. And so US Open was standing to lose around $800 million if they cancelled the event. So I reckon that's going to be the challenge too. UCI will want to sanction events and say, scheduled it now it's got to be held pending epidemiological conditions um, and I think there's I wonder too if there's ever going to be any thought um, and this will you know bow into the egos of some of the grand tour organizers what if we didn't have three weeks of the Tour de France do we need three week grand tours um, could they be more exciting more um, could the stages be more um, difficult but shorter if that were only two weeks you know and I'm sure as Stewie said he's done eight versions now of the Tour down under um, making things longer is not always better. M- making more stages or more kilometres is not always the answer. So I think that there needs to be some openness to um, moving with the times and providing things um, that are a bit more realistic. And I wonder if we'll ever get to that point where we don't need three three-week Grand Tours in one year. It was interesting with the Vuelta was only uh, 18 days only, <laughs> uh, three days less. And uh, it, it wasn't really noticed. Uh, it's been a pretty tough season. Uh, but, but I thought, I can't, still can't believe that they managed to put three grand tours and most of the classics into that three-month period and, and get it all done. That uh, It's still staggering. But they learnt as they went. I mean, they didn't do it very well early on. The Tour de France had lots of challenges, um, and especially in they tried to almost like normal, there were big crowds on all of those mountains, no social distancing, and I'm sure that came back to bite them, actually, uh, with all those people going back to their areas because it was just starting to get rampant. The Giro, they ran a little bit better, um, but still had lots of challenges, and then by the time they got to, to the Vuelta, they did that very well, and I reckon that could be the blueprint that they sort of try and put into next year in that they Forgot about trying to get crowds, as same as with the, the, the Tour of Flanders, or classic, no crowds, just the local people standing on the side road, that's all, and I reckon that will be how they have to do it. So it'll be a, a television special and the people of, uh, say, Tour of Flanders will run again, people of Belgium will be watching it on television, huge, huge, and that'll be how I think it will probably move forward. So because trying to get people there is going to be the, would be the issue. Well, and I wonder if if, we did that interview with Matt White on what was happening at the Giro and he reported some pretty interesting interesting breaches, you know, having teams staying at the same places as tourists. So I I think you're right about the model that could work. The challenge is every town that's bid for the race to go through their town wants the benefit of tourism as well. They don't all have the same production value as the, the France coverage where we see beautiful aerial shots. So there's a lot of footage that isn't captured of the Giro and the Welter the way there is with the Tour de France. So they do rely on regional tourism and an injection of people 
every single day. That's, I reckon, what they'll rail against. That, um, And we see that in Australia. Regional tourism is really suffering when people can't travel and move around. So the best way to contain a virus is everyone stays home, but then the economy crashes. So we are still in that process of finding a balance between the healthiest community but that they can still thrive and we can still go out. And I'm, I mean, I'm still working from home from this desk that I've been working at since March. I'm totally over it. And I'm sure all the Telstra workers are the same. We're not going to be heading back to the offices anytime soon and maybe not this year. And that's really great for containing mass movements of people in and out of elevators and in and out of office spaces. But what we're missing is all of this wonderful informal collegiate conversations, the debrief after the meeting with the important person when you're in the elevator and you're saying, what happened there? What do we do now? You don't get any of that now. You just hang up and click leave every meeting and you're just in meetings all day. Now, I know that's not related to cycling, but I know a lot of our audience are in that same experience that I am, which is incredibly busy, working really hard, but sometimes from your spare room or your kid's room or the kitchen and trying to get some semblance of normal life in the same way that a lot of the athletes, and we saw Simon Clark did this, you know, training at home for weeks on end, preparing for his season um, and trying to trying to replicate what you normally have, but it's not the same. So Stewie's right. This has had an extraordinary impact on so many of us in all manner of ways. We're lucky to have jobs. I'm incredibly privileged to have a really good job. But we also have these downsides of losing a lot of our social connectivity and our connection to human beings, and that's really, really hard. Uh, We were chatting to Scotty Sutherland uh, a couple of weeks ago, who's obviously the race director for Tour of Flanders and Cadell Road Race. The the other issue is the lead-in time you need for these events. So with the progression of things like the vaccine, and it's obviously still unknown when that's all going to kick into gear, but is it probably in the best interest for the sport to make a call as early as possible to to maybe push the season back and do that call early so it gives people time to prepare and then do like a similar format where it's a lot more congested towards the back end of next year. But at least it gives that extra time because the scrambling part, I think, is what's making it more difficult when you've got an event that's you know one or two months away, but there's all these sort of moving parts and it's, it's obviously exploding in Europe. Would it be in the best interest to make a call earlier uh, rather than later to push the season back, do you think? I think that's a really good question, but I think whenever anyone asks if it's in the best interest, I always think for whom. So, yes, as a race director, you'd love to be known, you'd love to be told, okay, your dates are December 2021, let's plan the best Tour Down Under ever. But, of course, um, fate can get in the way and God laughs at your plans and all those things. But the other problem is all of the logistics that are required. So what does that mean, let's say, for South Australian police? Or what would it mean for Vic Pole if every single bike race was all being congested? They'd say, we don't have the resources to ensure road closures. Or there'd be um, local governments saying, well, we don't have opportunities. You know, it's actually better to space things out. And if we think about European races, there'd be people with cross purposes or those who are seeking to have a promotion of their local council or a um, an announcement made or be the first or or stand firm and hold three weeks in July. So let's not pretend that egos and, and powerful people who make decisions about, say, broadcasts or investments or teams or announcements or sponsors, those people are integral to sport um, and they have agendas as well. So it's not just sitting with one person. And let's use the Australian Open as a great example. I'm working closely on, on how do we bring that event safely to Uh, Victoria to Melbourne and we still haven't landed it yet Um, you know this is a really complex event where hundreds of people want to come to Melbourne 
and play tennis and move around and they want to be here, do those things during 14 days of quarantine. That's still very complicated and our Premier has confirmed it's not a done deal yet. And yet if we said let's just make the tennis season really short and have it all over four months, that's really complicated. Then you're navigating multiple nations' agendas, multiple um, national borders or global borders, I should say. So... Yes, there's some good interests in some, but I also wonder, and this could be what we've seen with some of the sport in Victoria, is what about if we had a Nationals that only had Australians or Victorians in it? What, what about this Tour Down Under that could only have Australians in it that are permitted to go? If, if it's only people who can get there, um, as we say in bike racing, you can only beat who shows up. And that's not a bad thing to have a different version of the race. It doesn't need to be all or nothing and, like, get all the stars or you throw it in the bin. I think Mm. all of us have had to work on what could be a compromise, what are our deal breakers we absolutely need to have, and then what would be our nice to have. Um, And I think that clearly guys like Stuart and and other race directors, Kimberly Conti as well, are really, they're innovative and they can problem solve. They're not throwing things in the bin. Um, But we need to be, we need to think of athletes as well. I mean, we all hope that the Tokyo 2021 Olympics are going to proceed in August. But you're right, Dan, what happens if we're getting to a point where there isn't a vaccine yet? Will people really, will millions of people fly into Japan? Will they want international arrivals, people from the United States, with these case numbers the way they are, flying in and out of countries? So there's still so much up in the air at the moment. Um, and I think in Victoria, the, the Grand Prix probably marked the beginning of the pandemic here with the, with a cancellation of the Formula One on the day on you know, people standing outside the queue and then a decision being made. So no one wants to get to that point where we're calling off an event on the day. I still remember when they cancelled that um, Formula One, there was blokes in the crowd going, oh, they've cancelled it for a bloody flu. This is a joke. (laughs) And then, yeah, as you said, it really kicked off. So uh, Ify, I was just looking at the clock. We're pretty much halfway through. I think you should maybe do your sponsors plugs, you know, the, the real highlight of the show. (laughs) Uh, and knock knock those over and then uh, we can play another quick grab from Shuey and talk about some... We also should see how Sandy's going. Oh, yeah, actually, we should. That's a good point. How you going, Sandy? Well, I tell you what, Matt Keenan, I've seen him commentate while he's zwifting. He does a much better job than this. Uh, It is a tough gig, but we're going well. The group's holding together, keeping people back behind the fence. So uh, we've got a bit of chat going in the game as well. But, mate, that's it. I'm huffed and puffed. Yeah, I saw you I'm in the done. background at one point go for the towel. Have you thought about getting just like a, a – actually, I've got one here, like the headband. Yeah, you know what I look like? Olivia Newton-John with no hair. <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't. And, and, uh, no. <laughs> are, the, are the guys sticking together? Are they hanging around the beacon? Yeah, they're doing a pretty good job. We've got one more prize to go. We've given one away. I think it's Tanina Williams in – South Australia, so well done, Nina. And uh, got one more prize to go for Cisco WebEx closest to the pin. Okay, mate. So your ride will finish at uh, 7.45. 20 minutes. In how 20 long? Minutes ago. Okay. 20 minutes. All right. Well, we'll check in soon for the uh, final sprint, mate. Good on you. Thanks. Good on you, Sandy. Yeah, actually, it's good to check in with Sandy because, uh, as I said, yeah, he was dripping in sweat before. Um, so that's just a, a welfare check more than anything. Uh, now, Johnny, uh, Mutual and Wines, mate, open up the shoulders. <laughs> well, I've got my script back. <laughs> Sweet. Yes, well, one of Australia's, oh, just a little cough, that's part of it, uh, favourite wineries and a place of escape. 
Experience the history, the beauty, and the serenity of the Goulburn Valley at your own pace. Looking over the vineyards and the iconic tower, stay at the new hotel, relaxing by that amazing pool, recharging in the day spa, where you can quiet the mind and unwind the body and rediscover your balance in a setting of peace and harmony. Experience the seasonal menu at the Muse, where local producers produce offers worlds of flavour. Sample the seasonal menu with all wines perfectly paired. Stop by the Provador and the tour the cellars, and of course, taste their highly awarded signature wines, always to be enjoyed. Taste the craft and the care in every bottle at their cellar door. Mitchell has become a really popular uh, venue for weddings and the special occasions, and there's a happy couple. Uh, and, uh, of course, you have to go downstairs and visit the new Aboriginal Art Gallery. It is amazing, and it's a must. Uh, it's world-class with a huge range of amazing pieces from a variety of nations' best artists. And there it is, the $10,000 uh, Land Cruiser with the $1.8 million. No, we've got up to $2 million. Uh, it's dropped. $1 million uh, paint job. Yes, exactly. Okay. <laughs> Good stuff, John. All right, here's a quick word from our great mates at Bike Exchange. Look at this bike. You think it's just a bike, right? But it's not. <clears throat> it's a bike. 374 people are looking at. This guy, this girl, them, all looking at it. People from here, there, and wherever this is. People that are looking for a bike. Or just a piece of it. Amateurs, semi-amateurs, and pro-amateurs. This guy wants this bike, but with this crank and these bars. This could be the perfect match, but not this one. This girl has a bike to sell, and thousands of people might purchase it. Eyes on Bikes help grow small businesses. His, hers, yours, and the latest data and insights help those businesses keep moving. We are the world's number one bike marketplace with over 500,000 products and 900 brands where buyers and sellers are brought together in a place where a bike is never just a bike. Bike Exchange, where the world buys, sells, learns and rides. Now, Johnny, you've got a new script uh, for the next four weeks uh, <laughs> from WebEx. Bit of pressure, mate. Don't stuff this one up. <laughs> Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Telstra Connected Cycling is powered by Cisco WebEx, video conferencing and online meeting software where you can meet face-to-face -face with anyone in the world on any device, securing the knowledge, your data and privacy is protected. Cisco WebEx is available via Telstra. There you go. Good stuff, mate. Now, if you want to leave any comments or chat uh, whilst the show is live, Continue to do so. Diane, morning light becomes you both. <laughs> I'm not sure about that. Uh, hello from Cardiff, Wales. Love this podcast show. Thanks, Ewan. Uh, Jenny Whitehead, good morning, guys. Early start today. We've got uh, Mariano tuning in from Mexico. And uh, Ben Jensen, who knew it was possible to get up this early? I hear you, Benny boy. But uh, <laughs> it's been fantastic so far. Let's have a, another look at our chat with Stuart O'Grady, where we talk a little bit more about the season and, and a few of the highs. It's been a, 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 an amazing year, and we've been talking about it uh, on air, off air, about how we managed to get three in three months, three grand tours and most of the classics uh, yeah. uh, done. And 
like you, they've, they've had to learn on their feet. There's no doubt the Tour de France were very lucky uh, in that they didn't have it very well organised, the bubble and all that didn't work as well. You could see the crowds mm. on the on the roads that weren't that good. The Giro did a little bit better, but they still had lots of problems. And by the time they got to the Vuelta, they did it really, really well, which seems to be the, the blueprint they're going to try and uh, uh, use for next year. What, what are your thoughts on that, mate? Oh, yeah, look, it's been phenomenal. Um, I've got to say, I haven't missed being a professional cyclist or, or even involved in a team. I mean, you know, the guys aren't uh, flying around Europe as they normally do, uh, doing hell of a lot more, more travelling. Obviously, just not having that, um, I guess, personal, you know, being able to just go down the street and have a coffee on a rest day, being able to pull in and, you know, have an ice cream or whatever you used to do and, you know, it's been really, really controlled and regulated. Um, must be really hard for the guys and all the teams. Um, you know, I feel for them. It's, it's not doesn't look like a fun environment to be in. You know, cycling is supposed to be summer. Um, you know, everyone's out waving their flags. Um, you know, having a drink. It's just an exciting time to be in Europe. Uh, from everything that I've seen, it doesn't look like an exciting time to be in Europe. So, for that reason, I haven't actually missed the racing. I've been pretty content to watch it on on the couch. Um, and it's also, you know, been a really good educate education to be able to watch all the grand tours, um, you know, from start to finish, uh, and just kind of taking a lot more than what sometimes what you see when you're on the road traveling. Um, but yeah, I mean, the guys have put on a phenomenal show. Um, you know, seeing the guys race in Spain in November, freezing cold rain, you know, it just doesn't look fun, but geez, they did some great racing and, uh, you know, hats off to them all. And, and Stewie, that, that's the thing. Uh, the racing has blown me away, just the intensity uh, of the racing. But as you said, I saw you through a little interview the other day, you wouldn't have liked to have been in there because there was not much rolling along. And I can only think of two stages in the whole three Grand Tours where they actually rolled along a little bit. Every other stage in every Grand Tour has just been fire the gun and go for it. Yeah, it's flat out. And, you know, that that's the same as the classics as well. They just, you know, I mean, I know it was always fast and furious, but it just seems to be that lack of cohesion. And, and, and I'm guessing most of the teams have got some kind of plan. Obviously, they do. But it's like when that flag gets dropped, all the plans go out the window. Um, and, you know, there's a group up the road and then another group will attack and a couple of guys will attack here and you know, it's really been random to watch. It's been fantastic from a spectator's point of view. I mean, you know, it's, the racing's been next level. Um, you know, Liège, Bastogne Liège, uh, you know, some of the semi-classics, Ken Werbelgum was was crazy. Um, you know, every single race was just off the charts. Um, and, you know, the backup of the, you know, I thought it was going to be a few dull years with, with Cancellara and Boonen and, you know, I guess the, the big classics guys, Sargon, you know, not being quite at his peak, which we expect from him. Um, and then you get, well, you know, Van Aert and Van Der Poel and, and Alaphilippe. I mean, mate, we've got some cracking years ahead of us. It's awesome. Uh, begs a question, Bridey. What's been the highlight for you from a racing perspective in, in 2020? A lot of highlights, but I have to say Anna Vanderbregen winning both the time trial and the road race at World Championships. Um, that iconic image of her on the road bike rolling along the top, not rolling, you know, speeding along the top of that summit at Imola, the one that the helicopter captured. And then they captured it for every race after that because it was in such an incredible piece of cinema. Um, 
because I think also the Dutch team as a national team have been so effective. They, you know, they propelled Voss to um, the Olympic gold medal in, at London Olympics because of the way that they race. They race all for one and they've got the firepower, the legs to really be able to pull that off. Um, they they kind of show you the way a national team should race at a world championships or Olympics, which is send six or seven women to the event that probably could win uh, and use them all whatever way you can um, so that you have this sort of decimating attack at the end. So that for me was a really great masterclass in one country demonstrating the performance. Um, we saw a lot of lows with the Dutch team, of course, and having um, Van Bluten crashing and taking and Sprady crashing as well at the Giro. That was a real um, low point or a sad thing for a lot of Aussie cyclists because Spratt had just done so much preparation, firstly, when the Tokyo Olympics were going to be on, but then to really perform well at the Giro. So she's um, certainly making her way back, which is great, but she had some persistent injuries, head injuries from from that crash in the Women's Giro. So uh, it just shows you the, the, the highs and lows that for so many riders, but particularly for Aussies that make their way over and spend their whole year living in Europe, it's it's been a really incredible roller coaster of a year. How big a loss is Van Vluten for the Mitchell and Scott team or does it just present some, you know, big opportunities for the rest of the squad? I think the latter. You know, I think it gives some riders an opportunity to step up. Look at Grace Brown and what a great end of season mm. she had, you know, second to Lizzie Dunn and then winning a race, as, you know, a, a classic. That's a fantastic result for Brown. But also it gives Kennedy an opportunity to step up and some new signings. And they've also signed the first ever Afro-Caribbean rider in the women's pro peloton. So that's great for the team and for Mitchell and Scott. But it's actually really good for cycling that Movistar says, we see your value and your worth, and I'm sure they've um, helped not just financially, but they want her to become a leader in that team. Movistar's been a team that's clearly performed well in the men's pro peloton and have won the team's classification at the Tour de France for many years, but they're trying to build um, and have some leadership in that women's team. So it's good for Movistar, and it actually shows that um, women's cycling is increasing in, in how it values the riders. That said, we did see that the Cycling Alliance, Cycling Tips published a really interesting article about looking at conditions for the women riders and they're still finding a very big disparity. There's a few riders that are getting paid well for their job, uh, not, not the same ballpark as the men's salaries, but there are still a lot of riders not getting paid at all. And the conditions and other circumstances about security, you know, job security, having a team honour your contract and keep you for the end of the season. Look at Pal Palcar, they folded before the end of the season and just leaves the riders in the lurch. So there's still a lot of job insecurity if you're a woman. That said, there's for a lot of the men too, we saw a lot of guys racing the end of the season. Look at McCarthy. He had two really crappy crashes at the end of the year and got back on his bike because he was out of contract and, and Bora Hansgro hadn't re-signed him. And a lot of riders desperately looking to see what would happen. And I think for Alex Dowsett um, as well, who won a stage for Israel Startup Nation, and then finally, just a couple of days ago, announced he's got a contract for 2021. So if anyone has aspirations to be a pro cyclist, you know, it's not all just being Cadell and winning the Tour de France. Mm. There is job insecurity, you know, risk of, of life and, and your body um, and a lot of uncertainty and pain and suffering in between. So all kudos to the women and men that are racing across the world because this is a really hard job uh, and they're doing their best. Um, they continue to impress me. 
Now, talking about contracts, we had a chat with Adam Hansen last week, and some of the stuff he revealed in that was mind-blowing. The thing that blew me away, if he was the story of Bob Stapleton and, you know, taking printers to races, and if you didn't sign the contract before the Tour de France, uh, you wouldn't ride. And then just saying to him, you know, three days out, okay, here's your contract. Well, it's half of what was agreed to. But knowing that his manager wasn't there, I mean, did you see a bit of that stuff back in your day, Bridie? Like little sort of dodgy tactics to to throw? Yeah, all the time. I mean, I used to have uh, my first pro contract in 2010. I was racing with a new team that had uh, every every national champion from Europe and the world champion in it, and it was a great example of a team of champions that wasn't a champion team, and it was super dodgy, and it was run by a completely corrupt local businessman, and he was in cahoots with another guy who was trying to promote a bike sponsor it was it was a mess it was like every story you ever hear but he also said oh we're not gonna we're not gonna pay you the way we said we would so I got over there and they said we're just gonna give you your salary each month but you've got to come over and pick it up at like 9 p.m from my apartment on your own Mm -hmm. Uh, and then if you didn't do it that way and you brought a teammate or you said you know during the middle of the the week hi you're a month over of paying me my salary I need to actually afford to buy food and coffee and you know pay for things Um, and they'd say well we've only got you know 500 euro can we just give you the 500 euro even though it's meant to be 1500 and you know so it was a constant battle um and you just you're stressed all the time you're worried about affording things uh, you're kind of racing to get selected for the next race in the team and my performance in the Giro the women's Giro d'Italia was used for them to decide they weren't going to take me to um the Vargata team's time trial which was a dead flat race and a race that the Australian team were using a selection for worlds so I didn't get selected for worlds based on a race that would have really suited my physical ability because I'd raced like crap at the Giro over 10 days in on the mountains, which was not something I was good at. So that that lack of um, power or autonomy or decision-making as a rider and the stuff with Hanson that he shared is, doesn't surprise me. He told me that, you know, sometimes he'd be there preparing for a really mountainous stage of the Tour de France and the mechanic would say, here's your gears. And he said, no, I want a 27. And they go, you don't need a 27. You know, in my day... And Hanson thinking, I'm the rider. I'm the guy pushing the pedals. I should get to choose if I want a bigger gear because, I, you know. So it just doesn't, it doesn't need to be that hard, but there are a lot of people who are probably not getting paid well enough either to be mechanics or to be team directors. And so they're exerting their power and influence over a, a group of riders that are just kind of like, well, what am I going to do if I don't have the contract, if I don't sign it? I'm on a bus or a train or at a train mm. station. Mm. That's a terrible, terrible story. <laughs> right, excuse me. That's a terrible <laughs> cough, John. <laughs> the, but the women's racing has really uh, um, gone ahead in the last, especially in the last two years. You know, the, the season is getting more structure. There are more teams are still a bit dodgy on the payment side of things. But you can really see a lot at the end of the tunnel now. It's just a shame that the whole cycling world is struggling uh, financially. So to set those um, sort of structures and limits, I mean, the UCI realises the issues. They're trying to address it. Uh, but, I mean, the sport itself hasn't got enough money uh, and to, so every, everyone's suffering. But there's got to have to be a minimum wage lift for, for, for the women's cycling. And you touched on before something I thought was quite amazing, the UCI to deliver that World Championships in that short time was amazing. I mean, they were camp- they were supposed to be in Switzerland and they had like two and a half weeks to move it to Italy. And so the organisers in the UCI did an amazing job because it was a, a, a brilliant world, world Championships. 
Yeah, it was. Look, I, I, if I could be critical about anything, it's that the men's road race does not need to be that long. You know, all it ends up being is the first six or eight laps of those climbs is just people getting piped who felt like they had to show up or were in a bad position. We don't need 280 or whatever kilometres it was because the penultimate laps are what's interesting about it. Um, but you're right, the course was incredible. The, the winners were amazing. It was a spectacular finale. And, of course, with um, the men's winner as well, you know, anticipated uh, and dramatic and sobbing. And, look, he's really passionate about um, his performances, which is wonderful. It's wonderful for France, but also Wout Van Aert. I mean, Stewie's right. Look at the look at the calibre of riders that came through the men's season and how well they performed and Van Aert's just a superstar. Um, I, w- I do also want to just go back to, um, you know, an Adelaide connection, and that's Kimberly Conti. You know, we I think we can really thank her for the course that she pushed for for the Women's Tour Down Under this year back in January. She gave this great interview um, at the, the race hotel and talked about how she felt that for too long women's racing has been, um, not, not enough thought has been put into the stages and making them difficult and challenging. And if you make them difficult and challenging, the racing becomes exciting. The women are fit enough. They're aggressive enough and ambitious enough. So let's make it interesting and use some of the courses that they were using for the men's race. Um, and people go, oh, wow, how good was that? Or how attacking? And it came down to the final street criterion with multiple teams fighting it out for ne- very narrow margins of seconds and a really, really exciting race with a fantastic winner. So directors like Conti, um, we need more of them and we need more people thinking carefully about let's how to, let's see if the races and the courses are interesting enough because then you get to see the performances of those incredible riders. It was a big season for the Aussies as well. Uh, let's go back to our interview with Stewie. Before, before you do, mate, I just reckon we should just check on Sandy because they're just about to, uh, they're not long off finishing, and they might uh, just see how he's going with the, the next sprint. Sandy, how are you, mate? I'm there. I'm there. Minute, minute and three quarters to go. I think that's enough for me. Uh, group's done really well. Stayed together beautifully. Now, one thing i got to ask, Dan, Mm. And Bridie. Firstly, Bridie, thanks for joining us this morning. It's great you could join us. Loved hearing about the uh, the women. Um, why is John called Ify? What's going well, on we, there? We've, we've answered this a few times on the show now. You, you've got to watch every episode, Sandy. <laughs> um, it's John, like Game of Thrones, Sandy. You've got to watch. <laughs> yeah. uh, John, do you want to answer that one? In you, Give us the quick version. <laughs> well, no one ever beat me because they were better than me. It was only if I did if I if I hadn't have punctured or if uh, I hadn't had too many beers last night, whatever. So, well, yeah, if yeah, there you we're go. getting more comments, uh, Sam Bewley says, "Is if he hung over?" <laughs> <laughs> no, too early in the morning. <laughs> That's the one thing that did challenge for me as well, Bridie, the Tour de France this year. It's the first one I've missed in 20-something years. Um, but, you know, uh, at least when I did my morning breakfast uh, radio, uh, I was actually sober this time because normally I'd be in Europe and it'd be 11 o'clock at night when I did the breakfast and I was half half whack. But anyway, big changes. We've got a question for you, Sandy, uh, from Vazzy J. Hi, Dan Niffy. Can you please ask your Telstra man, you're just known as the Telstra man now, uh, what is the best... <laughs> What is the best way to get involved with Zwift and the Telstra ride? Yeah, great question. Um, we are, you have to have the Zwift companion app. You will find it listed in an event. And we are 7 o'clock Australian Eastern Daylight Savings Time each Wednesday. So that's how you join us there. To join us on our Facebook and LinkedIn groups as well, Telstra Connected Cycling, 
And of course, Telstra Connected Cycling at team.telstra.com. And we'll keep you updated. Yep. Sounds good. So how long you got left of the ride, mate? Just just finished, thank God. Okay. I'm done. All right. How many how many riders did you have on the on this morning? Well, it's saying to me 357. I don't think we had that many. We had a big number. Oh, really that's good. great. Well, yeah, it's awesome. obviously the they call that the detour effect, mate. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> Watch your numbers jump through. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, exactly. All good. Anything you want to add before we let you share up? No, mate. I just want to say thank you guys for stepping in. I know Duncan appreciates it. The Telstra Connected Cycling Pro team appreciates it. And uh, we really like uh, this tandem series we've got coming up uh, till Christmas, really. It'll be awesome. So uh, thanks again, Brady, for joining us. Fantastic. Good stuff, mate. We'll, we'll uh, see you again on the show next week, uh, fit and ready to rock and roll. Absolutely. Cheers, everyone. See you, Sandy. Uh, yeah, so now I was going to play the interview with Shuey where he quickly touches on the success of Aussies in 2020. Yeah. And you must be pretty impressed with like uh, Jai Hindley and O'Connor and all this young crop that's coming through as well. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I haven't had a lot to do with a lot of those younger guys and I'm sure like many Australians, um, you know, cycling fans, we're kind of going, geez, who's this, you know, who are these kids yeah. coming through? Um, and you know, Jai's obviously done some great stuff at the Sun Tour, and but you know, they, they uh, you know, it hasn't been on the big world scene, I guess, the world stage. And you know, to see a young kid, you know, in the pink jersey on the final day, um, you know, it, it's it's fantastic. Um, Ben O'Connor winning stages, I mean, you know, the Aussies are just up the front in all the races, whether or not they're doing tempo or or you know, going for the stage wins. It's it's been, um, you know, hey, the cream's risen to the top. Uh, you know, there's a lot of opportunities out there for riders. Um, you know, a few of the tours, probably not all of the top riders were there uh, with the intense condensed season. But, um, but you know, as I said, it's, it's opened up the door for, for other kids to have a crack and have a go at races where they may not have had an opportunity if, you know, if it was a normal calendar year. So the guys have, um, you know, they came out all guns blazing. And, and as I said, there's opportunities in, in these races as well and at the other end of the scale of course there was uh, Richie finally getting on the podium of the Tour de France that was pretty special eh yeah yeah I mean um yeah I've been was a part of Richie's career from day one helping him um to get his contract with with Bjorn back in the day and, and to see his progression you know I was probably a bit worried there after the last few years um you know obviously the stage nine and all this you know the crashing and kind of Losing, I guess, that bit of nerve and the wet downhills. But to see Richie come out and kind of battle all those demons and, you know, trust me, he would have been working so hard behind the scenes. Um, you know, the staff, the people around him would have been constantly in his ear supporting him. Um, teammates looking after. There's so many things that go on behind the scenes which lead to that uh, Richie getting that result. But, I mean, mate, how good was that? Only our second ever podium, um, you know, in the Tour de France. Uh Fantastic for Richie. Um, you know, I'm just really happy for him that he, he got that podium because, you know, that's massive. Yeah, huge year, obviously, for Aussie cycling. Uh, you must be pretty excited, Bridie, uh, what the future holds for this young crop. Yeah, and I also think that there's a lot of riders that didn't get a chance. You know, let's look at Sarah Gigante, who's you know, a superstar and won national championships last year. 
she'd signed with Tibco, was going to go to the US this year, and of course those plans got a bit derailed. And she posted some great footage of herself racing around her five-kilometer radius of um, Melbourne, but also I think has just broken um, some Strava records up the one in twenty. Um, some local climbs here in in Melbourne. So there's some great young talent um, that will have been training here at home and and probably not having some of the downsides of travelling to Europe but also not having the racing experience. So I think elevating some of our riders that are a bit more experienced like Brown and Kennedy and Roy, we've seen also the retirement of Gracie Elvin who's been uh, a national champion twice at Buninyong and a um, a really strong performer at Spring Classics, um, a reliable domestique for leaders in Middleton Scott team. So she's done a lot for women's cycling and and certainly I think we'll be getting back to Canberra. Um, She's got a partner, husband, former rider as well. So it's, um, it's a really interesting changing of the guard probably kind of season and I'm really interested to see how riders will go through summer um, and if you I'm wishing you luck for planning a lot of these events <laughs> I'll tell you what we're talk, talking about uh, things that happen disappointing uh, the the Giro when the whole Mitchell and Scott team had to uh, withdraw because of the challenges of the COVID and I really felt for young Lucas Hamilton because mm. he could very well have been the other Aussie on on the podium, uh, and he he was looking really really good. So, uh, and I think he's going to be uh, a superstar. You mentioned on Sarah. I'm a big fan of of Sarah's. You know, she's been a part of my um, Lexus Blackburn team for the last couple of years uh, in the Bay Crits and stuff. But I, I just when she won that Australia Road title, it just was amazing. It blew me away. She was like 18, I think. Uh, and I just thought, there is so much talent there. She is the one Aussie rider that I think has that huge talent to be a world number one. And we've got lots of really good ones there, but if she gets everything right there, I believe she could be, uh, you know, like a Van Vluten. She's got, she's got the power there uh, um, to make that all happen. Actually, Sarah Roy was part of the 2006 Talent ID program that I was part of that um, helped me get identified before winning national champs in the time trial. She was a due athlete. So I don't know if she was 18 when she won the national title because she was 20 back then, but we'll, we'll do the maths later. Um, but she, yeah, super, super runner, great engine, um, very powerful. And as you know, that national time trial uh, criterium championship in Sturt Street in Ballarat has this long drag uphill finish that comes from a U-turn. You know, it's one, it's a hot dog circuit, but it's not like any other with it's got downhill on one side and uphill on the other. It's a really hard course to time. And then wind has a real factor as well. And then there's been hard conditions where it's been pouring with rain, I think, this year. So um, she did really well to win that. We've also seen her ride very strongly in support of the team like she did at Norway in Bergen, where Katrin Garfoot ended up with a silver medal in, in that road race. So... There's a lot of riders like that. I mean, look at Hindley and his performance this year as well. There's a lot of riders who whose names we know because we've seen them at nationals or national road series, and here they are now performing on the world stage. And I think we do have to thank guys like Port because people get this a bit of a patriotic lift and they just think, you know what, we, we can be big enough to stick it to a lot of these riders. We don't have to be in the biggest team. Um, that said, Sunweb is a highly well-oiled machine and a highly drilled sort of team, and they perform very well all season. So for a rider like Jai, that worked very well for him. Um, I just think it also opens up opportunities for riders to try and find the team that works for them and having even Michael Matthews come back into Mitchelton Scott. It's about finding the recipe of the, perhaps the team director or the type of program or, in Alan Piper's case, you know, 
we need to sort of start celebrating a lot of our team officials that are working and look at what an incredible result that was um, for Pogacar. And in fact, now that I think about it, my highlight of the season, Dan, was your interview with Alan Piper. Like hearing Alan Piper talk about how cycling changed his life, saved his life, mm. um, that was really beautiful. And I think that um, there are a lot of people like Alan whose lives have been saved by by having a pathway open to them and or safe from illness, safe from near death. Um, he's a great man. I have a lot of respect for him. Yeah, and I, I think he, he's really good at, at giving perspective. And, you know, the, the common question that we've asked on this show is, you know, what, what tools can you give people to get through really tough times? Um, you know, his take on all of that uh, was unbelievable. You know, how it's all about, you know, obviously moving forward. But, um, you know, things will get better. Um, and just that positive sort of mindset uh, is fantastic. And just the raw emotion as well. I think 2020 is dished up more than any other year, just raw emotion. We're seeing that at the finish lines. We're seeing that in interviews. Um, people are, are, are showing their vulnerabilities, but I think we're getting to that point now where we need it. We need to connect. We need people to show that, you know, hey, it's, you know, people have gone through some tough stuff. So, um, you know, to get some tools and strategies on, Working through that, I think, has, has been really important. Uh, we've, we've got a question that's just come in for you from Andy Matthews. It's, it's quite a good one. Something that you have not mentioned about 2020 is that most of the junior and under-23 events were cancelled, including Worlds, making it tough for the next group coming through. Does Bridie have thoughts on this? I do. Yeah, thanks. It's a good question. And if we think of the local level, that's what's happened here as well. You know, in Victoria, we've um, allowed professional and high-performance sport to continue training and even competition through lockdown but no grassroots or community sport has been permitted. And that's put a really big pause on all these sort of sub-elite or what we'd consider to be junior and, you know, stars, future, people who think they're on a pathway or hope they're on a pathway to becoming professional. So no doubt it means that they're not getting that same rubbing elbows and race experience or the same physical simulation of high-intensity work and um, race craft. I think those things will get kept catch back up again. The challenge is, as Ify mentioned, is when the whole sector of professional sport is impacted from a financial perspective, the first things to go are the things that cost the most and yield the least. So let's keep professional men's cycling. And I think the UCI was heavily criticised back in April when they didn't even publish a plan for the women. It's like, quickly, let's keep the Grand Tours going. But oh, yeah, that's right. They're also professional women riders. And you're right, under 23, um, I'm sure paracycling has, races have been um, affected as well. And, and we know para worlds and um, Paralympics are a really big priority for the UCI. But there just would have been fewer races for all the other categories that aren't elite men and elite women. What I do think, though, is um, what, we, what we forget sometimes is that you also don't, don't have as many people crashing, you don't have as much overtraining, you don't have as much injury, uh, you don't, there's, you're also losing some of the downsides and that's not a bad thing either. Um, when I talked about Gigante and some of the other junior riders, they didn't have to spend seven months away from home, they didn't have a lot of the hardship that also comes. So let's not only focus on the things we've lost, there, there'll be some upsides to building strength, to working out maybe what you're good at, to maybe even finding a new path and not, you know, forging down a direction that you may not want to be in. So it does sort a bit of the wheat from the chaff sometimes. And I think that there will be um, a renewed, invigorated, you know, group of people saying, I've had a year out. I really, really want to get back in there and I really care about cycling and I want to race. So it helps 
for a lot of people make decisions, same as those athletes that were focusing on Olympics and think, can I do another year? So I know I sound like I'm being a bit Pollyanna, but I, I feel like there's a lot of upside and we don't focus enough on what could have happened and what could have gone wrong for a lot of these athletes that might have been overseas. Ify? Yeah, no, look, you're spot on there, Brody, and and we have to be so careful. I mean, you're right. Everyone was thinking about the top end in Australia and overseas, and uh, it was just to deliver that, but we have not been able to deliver for the youngsters, which are really uh, are the uh, future of the sport. So we've got to be really careful in what we're planning. And I've just been working out with with the bakery so, of how we fit the juniors back in and the para uh, events to make sure that they're uh, a part of uh, you know one of the legendary events of cycling, the the, the Lexus Blackburn Bakerits. Another ad. <laughs> Love a plug. Uh, it's been a jam-packed show, guys. Uh, now, before we go, uh, as I mentioned earlier, we had a Adam Hansen on last week. Now, I went on a bit of a YouTube rabbit hole, and I can't believe I didn't show this GoPro vision. It's a classic. Uh, it was from the Zonkland, the Giro stage in 2014, and one of the local Italian fans, well, we know Adam's a bit quirky, uh, but he had a, a selfie stick, and he got footage of, of going up the climb, and uh, Adam really embraced it. So I want to run that before we wrap up the show. Hey, Dan, How good's that? I'm I'm Sandy can do friend. that next year. Once once Sandy gets up his fitness to be able to talk and ride, he could he could do more videos like that. Yeah, exactly. Um, anything you want to add before we go, Ify? No, look, I've never seen that bit of vision. And you know, I don't know any other pro uh, who, who would have done that, but uh, that is a real hoot. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, I'd just like to uh, uh, thank you, Bridie, for coming on for the real early morning. Uh, good to see you got out of your jarbies. You were going to uh, – You're welcome. But, <laughs> but thank, thanks, heaps. A really, really interesting chat. Yeah, thanks for having me stuff in there. Appreciate it, Bridie. Um, And as we said, if you want to get involved with Telstra Connected Cycling, uh, get on their Facebook and uh, they'll, they've got the links in there for the Zwift Ride, which is next Wednesday. Uh, if he maybe you can just wear Lycra, you don't have to ride, but you know, just make it feel like you're a part of it. <laughs> uh, until then, we'll see you next Wednesday, uh, 6 50 a.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time. Uh, thanks for joining us, and thanks again, Bridie. We'll speak to you all soon. Thank you. Cheers. <laughs>